Hello and welcome to the Digital Digest, your weekly telecoms and data center podcast brought to you by the teams at Capacity and Data Economy. I'm your host, Deputy Editor Melanie Mingus, and joining me this week, we have Editor-at-Large Alan Burkett-Gray and Senior Reporter Natalie Bannerman. We are also joined later in the episode live by Daniel Blalev, who is the Vice President of Strategic Programs at Network and Cloud Forum, MEF. And Daniel will also be joined by some additional VIPs, um, and we'll go to, to the whole team very soon. But before we get into the interview, um, a quick roundup of the headlines and the rest of the news from the week. We have heard over the last few days that Egypt has offered its telecoms expertise to Libya as the country looks to rebuild its telecom services. The ink has dried on Axiata and Telenor's 12 billion US dollar deal that will merge their Malaysian mobile operations. AT&T has sold Golf Clash to EA. It acquired the business as part of the Time Warner deal and has now sold it for 1.4 billion US dollars cash, um, which is a lot of money. And Yasat has finally broken its silence on the IPO front, confirming that it will list in Q3 of this year. Meanwhile, London Underground is to get its own wholesale 4G and 5G network, um, courtesy of BAI Communications, while in Ethiopia, Ethio and Ericsson have deployed a 4G network. And in Europe, a subsidiary of the PPF Group is taking O2 Czech Republic private following a share buyout over the last couple of days. Um, so those are the headlines, um, but now we're going to go over to Natalie for an in-depth look at some of this week's top stories. Thanks, Melanie. Uh, yeah, so we're going to start off today uh, in the UK with a story that broke um, about BT. So for those who uh, aren't aware, BT is actually lead you to face the Competition Appeals Tribunal over a lawsuit uh, being brought against them for reportedly overcharging its customers. The landmark £600 million lawsuit was launched against the UK incumbent telco in January of this year by Justin Lepaterel, who is a telecoms consultant and former um, Ofcom executive executive, um, a role that he had for about 13 years. Uh, Lepeta Rell is also a representative of um, CALL, which is Collective Action on Landlines, which is a, a consumer group, and they are seeking compensation for BT customers who overpaid for landlines and follows an earlier report by Ofcom, who in 2017 found that BT had been overcharging millions of its landline customers as of 2009. Specifically in 2009, the wholesale um, cost of landlines were falling, but BT continued to increase its prices. At the time of the Ofcom discovery, BT did actually agree to lower its prices, but no compensation for those who had already been overcharged charged had been made. So as for today's hearing um, with the tribunal, it will actually determine which claimants will be included in the class um, action suit and who will be certified to represent them. They will also consider whether the representatives of the estates of those who have passed um, since the initial Ofcom judgment in 2017 can also be included in the claim. Now, should Lepetera win um, and be certified to represent all claimants, um, he could be awarded um, up to, they could um, up to 2.3 um, million customers who took a landline from BT um, but did not bundle this with broadband service could actually receive about £500 compensation each. Uh, Lepetera and Call are both being advised by UK law firm Mishkondorea um, and we will be following this story as it progresses. Now, earlier this week, Allianz uh, Capital Partners, on behalf of Allianz Insurance Companies and the Allianz um, European Infrastructure Fund, announced plans to acquire a 10% stake in American Tire, um, Tower Corporation Europe. Now, once completed, the transaction will see Allianz join CD. 
PQ um, in a long-term strategic partnership with American Tower. Now, the deal is valued at uh, just over 530 million euros, which uh, indicates a uh, more than 8.8 .8 billion euro um, enterprise value for um, ATC Europe. Uh, under the terms of the deal, American Tower will, will retain a managerial and operational control, um, as well as the day-to-day -day oversight of ATC Europe, while Alliance will be given um, seats on um, ATC's Europe's board of directors, um, as well as um, certain governance rights. The transaction is due to close in the third quarter of this year and is subject to customary closing conditions, as well as regulatory approvals. Uh, next up, Atisalat has partnered with Ericsson to roll out 5G millimeter wave across its commercial network. Um, through this uh, commercial deployment, Atisalat will be able to deliver high performance 5G downlink data speeds of 4.2 gigabytes per second and a latency of 8 milliseconds. Um, it's actually been driven um, quite a lot by leadership across the UAE um, and they have really been uh, driving the acceleration of digitalization um, along with the Telecom Regulatory Authority and the Telecoms and Digital Government Regulatory Authority um, and they were actually one of the first in the world to allocate 5G millimeter, millimeter wave spectrum to be used for 5G deployment. Um, for those who don't know, you know, the high spectrum and the capacity of 5G millimeter wave actually makes it ideal for fixed wireless access and obviously will deliver fast and fiber-like internet speeds wirelessly across uh, the last mile, as well as for densely populated um, locations such as stadiums and uh, malls and large store indoor events that require uh, the high rates. Um, it also includes um, wide spectrum segments across for um, available for 5G um, with lower latencies. So really um, some great news um, for Tesla and Ericsson and um, we'll be looking to see what that when that deployment comes to fruition. Lastly, in the US, um, Windstream Wholesale has launched its ICON uh, network, which is a intelligent converged optical network. ICON actually enables Windstream Wholesale and enterprise customers to select custom routes, maintain operational insights using uh, network intelligent functions, and place their networks closer to the edge to better serve its end users, um, all of which is being achieved using ICON's open and disaggregated networking infrastructure. At the time of the announcement, uh, the new ICON uh, network also includes new routes from Hillsborough and Portland to Sacramento and from Los Angeles to Las Vegas. The, the expansion from Hillsborough will actually provide customers in the area with uh, diverse connectivity to data centers across the country and also lay the foundations for future demand from hyperscalers and cloud providers. The two new West Coast um, ICON routes are also powered by Sienna um, and, and their technology obviously provides the visibility and the insight um, and control that would be needed to deliver this uh, unique high performing service. Uh, but that's it for me. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Thanks, Natalie. Um, that really was huge news from Matisse Light and Ericsson. Um, and there's so much happening in terms of 5G innovation across the GCC at the moment because we heard about Saudi Arabia's spectrum um, openings a couple of um, couple of weeks ago now, I think. Um, but this is really interesting because, um, well, it says in, in your report about the speeds that they can achieve that you quoted, those downlink and um, latency numbers are really impressive. <laughs> it's really impressive, yeah, and I think probably one of the things to note is it seems that the digitization that's happening across the region is really happening quite quickly, and it's probably because it has a lot of government and regulatory support, which I suppose is a, a, a hint to um, any other countries wanting to do the same thing. If you really get that at uh, high level support, then things happen quickly, so very impressive. 
yeah it, it is a lesson for many people out there um but thanks so much natalie that was fantastic and we'll be back with you very shortly to hear the latest in the data center industry um but for now alan you've been covering many interesting things this week um tell us what's been going on well let me follow on from natalie's Atisalat and ericsson 5g story to talk uh, i've been talking to the head of um mobile at nokia that's tommy uto uh he took over president of mobile networks at nokia uh, in late 2018. Um, and he was really frank. Um, I must admit that he was really frank because they're launching something else. Um, and if you're listening on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you could be at a virtual Mobile World Congress in Barcelona, or you could be in a real life Mobile World Congress in Barcelona. So there have been a lot of announcements from the mobile industry over the last few days gearing up for this virtual event. Um, so Tommy told me that really Nokia got it wrong in its first attempt to develop 5G. Um, he's basically said that they did what was open heart surgery while they were still running the business to turn around Nokia's approach and to uh, put it, he hopes, right. Um, they Monday, they will have a big product launch uh, in Barcelona. Uh, he won't be there, so he'll be virtual. So, I mean, I'm not sure how many people are going. I only know a handful of people who've said they're going to Barcelona. But it's radio transmission and it's baseband. Uh, it's basically moving towards open RAN and Nokia seems to be embracing open RAN now. Uh, the industry wants everybody to embrace open RAN, so that's really what they're having to do. And he was quite frank about how they got it wrong. They They thought 5G would take a long time to get bedded down in terms of standards. And in fact, it moved really quickly, uh, although it's still quite early days in terms of uh, adoption. But the standard is more or less fixed. And um, the standard is more or less fixed. And I think what he's what they've done is realize that they can move from what was a temporary solution using what are called field programmable gate arrays, which are a sort of integrated circuit when you don't quite know what you're going to end up with at the end of the day, and you might want to make changes. And they've moved to proper custom integrated circuits, which they've got from Broadcom, Intel, and Marvel Technology. Um, one of those, and he won't say which, had issues in the, the first generation. But he says they've improved the performance and now they've got really, he was really enthusiastic about the equipment that they're launching in Barcelona. Um, already got some customers in uh, East Asia, that's Japan or South Korea, and he wouldn't say which, maybe one of each. They've got two customers, um, more rolling out in July, August and September. And then uh, the RAN that's the baseband equipment. The RAN equipment will be in all October onwards. Still very early days for 5G. Um, he seems to be enthusiastic now that Nokia is back in the race, which is quite an admission because Nokia has never before said, no, we were getting it wrong while they were, according to him, getting it wrong. So uh, they've had quite a management change over the last uh, year or two. The CFO and the CEO, um, as well as the previous head of mobile. So big changes around the Nokia um, and they're looking to the future. Let's move on to, again, if you're listening on Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday, uh, the last week of June, mark in your calendar the 1st of July, um, because that is going to be a really significant launch for OneWeb, the satellite company. 
They are going to launch uh, at about lunchtime in Europe, but it's actually coming from the far east of Russia. Um, the last of their launches before they launch commercial service. Uh, they're planning to launch commercial service later this year. Uh, the delay is due probably to the uh, availability of terminals. Um, but the 1st of July at about 12.48 UTC, which is what uh, breakfast time, maybe a late breakfast time on the east coast of the States. You're probably still asleep in California and it's late afternoon in Asia, China, Japan, so on. But that'll be um, 36 satellites that they will be launching and that will take them up to the point at which they can launch a network later this year for everywhere north of 50 degrees latitude. Be a big significant move for them and they will be able to launch services in all of the UK, in Belgium, Northern France, a lot of Eastern Europe, uh, a lot of Russia um, and Ukraine and places like that and uh, Canada and Canada is going to be really big and so is Alaska and so is everywhere in the Arctic Circle, which of course has no satellite coverage whatsoever because all the fixed satellites are low on the horizon. And there's really very little apart from that. Iridium is the only one that really provides some satellite coverage there. Um, and Starlink, which will be coming along at the same time to compete with them. That's SpaceX's uh, satellite project. So OneWeb will be will be watching. I'll be watching on uh, YouTube uh, on Thursday the 1st uh, while I eat my lunch. And uh, good luck to them on Thursday because this will be a really significant launch. Now, moving from things that go bang in the night uh, to green, uh, a green story. Vodafone, uh, back last October, it said it wanted, sorry, back last July, July 2020, it said it wanted to be all green as far as its electricity supply was concerned in Europe by the beginning of July 2021. And the last couple of days it has announced that that is exactly what it will be. From the 1st of July it will be powered by 100% renewable electricity right across Europe and next they're trying to extend that to Africa as well. Uh, they invested 65 million euros in uh, energy efficiency and renewable energy across Europe and that's led to a lot of energy savings. They've also said that 5G uses less energy. It's one of those things you get different views from different people. Some people say that because we're going to be using much more data, we'll be using more energy, more electricity. Um, Vodafone said in the last financial year, they bought 96% of their total energy in the form of purchased electricity. And now 100% of all that electricity will be from renewable sources. Um, and that includes all their buildings and their shops as well. So if they were They've got a Vodafone shop in the centre of London. They will be making sure that that is renewable electricity that they're using there. Um, Spain, Vodafone Spain, was seemed to be first to that race uh, back in March 2021. Um, they did a, a deal with the Spanish energy company Iberdrola, but they've gone right across Europe now. Um, uh, so well done to Vodafone. It's a big change. Um, next stage. Um, Listeners, please, if you have any information, come back to me. I'm going to be working on looking at what make what how data centers are green or how green are data centers. And that's not just 
power usage efficiency, PUE, which basically is how much energy you're using for the data center, for the data center rather for the kitchens and the air conditioning and all that sort of stuff from the elevators. It's how much processing power and storage power you get for every megawatt of electricity in your data center. I'm looking around for different metrics, different arguments, different suggestions. Get in touch with me because I really would like to do that over the next few year, weeks and come back to for the next issue of capacity and for a future digital digest. So please let, let us know. And finally, uh, double dose of bad news for Huawei uh, in the courts. They were in the court in Florida last week and in the court in uh, Sweden this week, uh, both appealing uh, about rulings that they shouldn't be able to supply equipment to local telcos, that's rural telcos in the States and the 5G operators in Sweden. Uh, they lost both cases. So it's really bad news for Huawei. And it seems to be that really Huawei has been excluded once and for all for um, uh, North American markets and European markets, European for 5G, North American for just about everything. Um, and as we saw in the results earlier this year, they've lost market share everywhere in the world except mainland China. Um, so um, I don't know whether their claims that the Americans and other security agencies have made against them, uh, which of course Huawei denies, but uh, it seems to really been a big change for Huawei and uh, bad news for their economy and for all their people. Um, so we will see what happens over the next year or two with Huawei, but uh, two bits of bad news for them. And back to you, Melanie. Thanks, Anne. That was a very comprehensive roundup. Thank you so much for bringing us all those stories. Um, yeah, interesting um, Interesting news on the Huawei front. Not, not great at all for them. How do you think they're going to emerge from that? Um, I think, well, they said that they would try to contest it, but this was a major appeals court in uh, in in Sweden, um, or basically said that the regulator PTS in Sweden had the right to say they would not give 5G licenses to anybody who used Huawei in their 5G networks. So I think in this, as we heard before a few minutes ago from Nokia, this is a really big early stage in 5G investment across the world. It means that they're going to lose two of the biggest markets in the world, that's Western Europe and North America. Um, the the American ruling was, was something entirely different. That was for rural fixed broadband, where Huawei was getting subsidy from the federal government, as is as was every other vendor, or rather every other rural operator was getting subsidy in in the US from the government because obviously economics of building rural broadband are quite difficult um, and there was a ruling that they could not use that subsidy to buy Huawei equipment and I don't think that's going to change I think you know Huawei is now closed market well the United States is now closed market for Huawei um, even though you know every operator I've talked to who's used Huawei including one of the two biggest North American operators. We're really happy with Huawei equipment, uh, not in the US because they weren't allowed it, but in places like Mexico. And I've also talked to Canadian operators who've used Huawei equipment and they're being ruled out of, of Canada as well. But everyone I talked to was really happy to say, we love it. And you know, just back three or four years, 
uh, at big events. I talk to uh, CTOs and other senior executives from European operators, including Orange, Deutsche Telekom, BT, Vodafone, 3, uh, O2, and so on and so forth. All were there saying, yes, we love it. Um, and now, of course, they just don't <coughs> talk about it. I think Huawei's excluded and it's going to take a long time. So, uh, and the, the, um, the effect has been, I think that they're also finding a lot of people are not using Huawei in emerging markets because uh, they're not so competitive. I mean, the China is very able, is able to make system um, sales very competitive by giving support from export agencies and so on. But I think there's going to be a reluctance to buy Huawei. And again, I have no information whatsoever. No one has said we have found some bugs. We have found that Huawei is spying on us or anything like that. Absolutely far from the case. Uh, no one's found any hard evidence, but nevertheless, the, the mud sticks and Huawei has lost out. Um, and at the same time, we've got this big change, as we were saying earlier. Open RAN is now the theme of the 5G industry. They are operators are moving to open RAN. They're looking for open RAN solutions. And I think as uh, 5G is installed, you will find more and more open RAN networks with Ericsson and Nokia, but a lot of other companies you've never heard of or barely heard of. Uh, people like Mavenir, NEC and so on, all jumping into the market. It's opened up the market, which was not a consequence anybody expected uh, back two years ago when Donald Trump was starting his battle against Huawei. Um, we'll see what happens. But I think it's yes, it's really hurt. Mm. Um, but, you know, it does have Huawei equipment. Who? The GCC, where we have all these oh, fantastic yes. 5G speeds being recorded. It's all over the UAE, all over Saudi Arabia. They are strong Western allies. Yep. Let's see how that plays out. Um, but yeah, fantastic. Thanks, Alan. Um, later in this episode, we will be joined by MEF talking about their proof of concept with AT&T, PCCW Global and Amatus. Um, but before that, we're going to get a roundup of the latest news from the data center industry from Natalie. Thanks, Melanie. Yeah, so starting off in Africa, uh, Main One is actually set to launch its Apollonia data center, which is the latest facility of its MDXI subsidiary. Uh, the new site, which is located 20 kilometers from the center of Accra, Ghana, will expand Main One's infrastructure and services profile in West Africa. Uh, it has been, it will be, sorry, built to cater to the increasing demand of co-location and interconnection services by multinationals and businesses seeking shared services in their um, IT resources. Um, it's actually due to go live later this month and uh, the 100 Rack Apollonia site will actually uh, support a global network of customers, partners and suppliers, all according to the company. Now, next up, Dialogue Exiata opened the doors to another tier three data center in Colombo, Sri Lanka. The facility in Filiandala uh, will be used by the company to widen its cloud and IT services offering to businesses and government customers. Dialogue is also in the process of upgrading its telecoms network to support 5G deployments um, facilitated by the type of cloud infrastructure in the new data center. Uh, according to Supan uh, Wishing He, uh, who is the 
the Group Chief Executive of Dialogue, Axiata, with uh, Fili Andala, supplemented by our investments in the Bay of Bengal Gateway and the Maldives-Sri Lanka cable system, we aim to establish the most secure and uh, scalable uh, infrastructure to position Sri Lanka as a leader in this digital age. Now, over in China, uh, Big uh, Data Center Exchange, or BDX as we know them, has opened the first phase of its 35 uh, uh, megawatt NKG uh, data center campus in Nanjing, China. The um, NKG1 facility is the first data center in the city to actually earn tier three certification and offers uh, four megawatts of IT power for co-location services. Uh, it's powered by two separate uh, 10 kilovolt feeders uh, from two substations uh, that will provide the entire um, NKG campus with um, 10 um, mega, megawatts of total power um, sanctioned all from the grid. Um, according to uh, Bill Gao, who's the EVP and CEO of BDX Greater China, um, NKG1 actually lays a solid foundation for BDX to provide OTTs, financial services institutions and uh, Fortune 500 customers with high re reliability, high redundancy and low latency solutions. So we'll actually see once that goes live, um, what kind of uh, customers will be uh, at the facility. Now, lastly, in the UK, Segro has actually reached an agreement with uh, Global Technical Realty, or GTR, who are a uh, European built to suit data centre firm to develop its first UK based facility, uh, the largest data centre campus in Slough, which is just outside of London. Uh, GTR, backed by the global investment firm KKR, I'm sure everybody's heard us mention their names a few times, will actually be taking a uh, 400,000 plus square foot space for a 25 year term to operate bespoke data centers on behalf of global technology companies. Segura will ta tailor the designs and develop the site to GTR's requirements, which will comprise of three independent data centers capable of operating individually or as one interlinked campus. It will, it will be developed in two phases. Um, and is due to be fully operational by Q4 of 2022. The first phase will provide uh, just over 132,000 square foot of space with vacant possession already achieved to start on site. And the second phase will create just over um, 628,000 square foot of space with vacant possession of the site delivered to the customer by early 2022. Um, but that's it from me with the data center roundup. Thanks so much, Natalie. Today we are joined live by MEF and their proof of concept partners, PCCW Global, AT&T and Amatus. Welcome to the Digital Digest, everybody. Hello, Melanie. Good to be with you. Today we are on the line with Daniel Barlev, who is the Vice President of Strategic Programs at MEF, as well as Devesh Gupta, who is the VP of Technology and Sales Operations at PCCW, and Michael Kearns, the Co-Founder and Chief Strategy Officer at Amatus. And today we're going to be talking about Proof of Concept 137, which is essentially scaling up partner onboarding and interop validation with wholesale partners. Now, there have already been two white papers on this topic, um, but to get the ball rolling today, Daniel, we're going to start with you. What are you looking to achieve? with this and what phases the PSC in currently? So uh, a little bit of background, Melanie. Um, our uh, membership uh, service providers and, and technology vendors are very focused, among other things, on uh, enabling uh, business to be done between them, um, to offer connectivity services and other telecom products. Uh, and uh, a great deal of effort's been put in over the last few years into enabling automation 
uh, using standardized interface and standardized APIs. So essentially, as we go into a much more uh, digital uh, product oriented era, uh, we want to make it as easy as possible for service providers to buy and, buy and sell from each other um, digital products that they can include in their own products for their enterprise customers. And um, one of the things that we need to do is to make sure that uh, when they, when they uh, interface uh, their, their automation between each other, that it works effectively. And so what um, Amatus did uh, with service providers like AT&T and PCW Global and other members of, uh, of MEF is essentially get together and say, one of the things that's really important for us as service providers is to um, uh, ensure that we're interoperable on this automation interface for pre-order, order, post-order post uh, activities for our telecom products. And we need a platform essentially to uh, pre-test, if you like, that, that interoperability. So as part of our POC program, MEF3.OPOC program, uh, we introduced this as a project and it's actually seeded uh, a program that we're planning to release, uh, which will actually be a production service for uh, MEF service provider members. Exciting times. Um, well, there are several um, PSC participants, um, not all here with us today, but we do have um, some very big names on the line right now. Um, so perhaps, Devesh, if we turn to you now and talk about how PCCW is using, um, is using this and you know, giving a use case to others in the industry. Yes, sure, Melanie. Hi. Um, thank you for having me on the call. Um, quite um, uh, recently, we, we started engaging uh, with uh, Amartas and with AT&T on this POC. Uh, we uh, at PCCW Global offer uh, global connectivity for layer one, layer two, layer three uh, underlying um, um, uh, ecosystems uh, all across the world. Um, these APIs um, allow us to automate our uh, interaction with uh, other global wholesale providers. So in this case, um, the service in context was um, a Hong Kong access service that we sell and um, the APIs would allow um, uh, any wholesale partners of ours to come and request for quotes for uh, connectivity services within Hong Kong. And um, on obtaining a quote, they would also be able to order services. Um, the actual uh, order handling is happening in the background in manual uh, manner, but after the circuit is provisioned, uh, we can actually provide an updated uh, information of uh, activation of the circuits also through the APIs. So in a nutshell, actually, uh, the process, uh, which was a manual process, uh, it used to take uh, maybe about two to three weeks or even more. Uh, this could be done in a matter of minutes now using uh, automated uh, Sonata APIs. Well, that's great news from from the operator front. Um, and in terms of the well, in addition, sorry, to the time benefits this brings, what kind of cost benefits does this have as well? It does cut down on, on the interaction, also uh, the in, uh, the back and forth, which normally uh, is being done using emails and other uh, semi-automated methods. So. Um, it does also include um, interfaces in terms of uh, human interface and all that is cut down um, to a bare minimum. So I think it would also save costs for customers. And in the no long run, actually what happens is you, you develop an ecosystem of uh, 
uh, partners. And if there are more than one, in this case it were two, but if you have more than two service providers who are operating underline and providing an end-to-end -end service, um, you know, the, the automation actually brings in um, a network effect where uh, customers can seamlessly order services on a much larger footprint than a particular single carrier's footprint. So in that case, it actually gives a, a good value add to the end customers because, you know, now they can order services for on a global scale. Uh, perhaps I'll just add to that. More, more and more of these services are becoming shorter and shorter in duration. And so the you want to reduce the transaction overhead for each, uh, each service that you're offering. So if you're offering a service, for example, for three years, you know, contract, then, well, if it takes, you know, a few weeks to put that in place, then it's not terrible overhead with, you know, email and, and fax and whatever. But if you're starting to sell services that, you know, last uh, a couple of hours or a couple of days, you want to be able to make sure that all that transaction, that automation um, is very, very, very efficient so that the overhead on each, you know, business transaction is very small. It's proportionate to the, 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 the business that's being done. So just to use an analogy, if we're buying online uh, from a shopping portal, um, the, the easier it is, the faster, the more efficient you can find the sort of things that you want to buy and you can pay for them, you know, one click, and then you get it the, the, the next day or the same day, then the actual volume of online business goes up and it's the same effect here. So um, it's not just reducing the, um, uh, it's not just streamlining the process and it, it's, it's improving the customer experience, but at the end of the day, it's enabling a whole raft of new innovative products that uh, today aren't really uh, cost effective uh, to come into the market and uh, really to change uh, to change the opportunities for the enterprise that are using them. Fantastic. Well, Michael, I'm turning to you now to bring you into the conversation. Um, Amatus works in network and cloud automation software, um, and you're also appointed co-chair of the MEF LSO committee. Um, so tell us more about the R&D muscle that you brought to this project. Sure. Yeah, no problem, Millie. Um, we, we've been uh, so we've been very heavily involved in development of the standard over over a number of years, and um, we're working as contributors and act, active participants in the in the development of standards and alongside the providers. And um, we've built out our own solutions to support the providers in in uh, rolling out their implementations. And as we've gone through that journey, um, we've recognised some of the challenges. Uh, with the implementation. For example, we recognize the challenge of working from documentation and uh, working from API definitions. And, you know, we, we saw the software uh, that we developed uh, under this proof of concept as critical. It's turning that um, those documents and, and API definitions into something that providers can uh, readily imp uh, test their implementations against, test, test against their partner implementations and essentially speed up and scale up the whole uh, onboarding of partners, which is critical. Um, you know, that's that's really been our, our, our role over in, in, you know, before the proof of concept and at the proof of concept is to is to work with the providers to really understand that challenge and how we can solve that problem. Um, and on those challenges, what kind of feedback did you get? So, yeah, we got some excellent uh, feedback in the sense that um, 
you know, we, we were able to, on a couple, a couple of key points, we were able to sort of recognize the benefit of being able to scale up uh, the number of partners that a provider uh, could, could actually work with in parallel. So for example, uh, you know, bef without this, this solution, a provider could maybe work with about three partners, three or four partners in parallel because you know, they would have a high uh, overhead on, on their resources. Um, with, by introducing the emulator uh, software, what we were able to do is allow uh, the provider partners to work independently within their own time zones and uh, to test their, their, their implementations of Sonata APIs to a high level of compliance and compatibility with the, with the provider. And this actually resulted in a kind of a tenfold increase in, in terms of the number of partners a, a provider can actually deal with at any one time. And um, we also, uh, from that's from mostly from what we call a buyer perspective. So buyers can engage their sellers quickly. They can do a lot of, of onboarding in parallel and it just cuts down the whole cost and overhead and, and builds out their, their Sonata partner network very quickly. On the seller side, um, you know, what we were seeing is that uh, sellers uh, who, who adopt the standard were ready to partner. So they could be ready uh, sooner to partner with the, with their upstream buyers. And, you know, this helps the whole adoption of the, uh, of the standard among the provider community. So really the, the, the main benefits we saw. Fantastic. Um, <clears throat> we'll open question next um, to all of you. Um, how will LSO Sonata APIs impact the industry as a whole? And, you know, these proofs of, proofs of concept are fantastic, but what's the plan to take it from POC to full-blown industry solution? So, see, uh, in terms of standardized APIs, we, we need to talk about, when we talk about MEF uh, LSO Sonata APIs, um, you know, a lot of carriers, wholesale carriers today have uh, some sort of APIs available for quote and ordering of connectivity services. But majority of these are all proprietary. And uh, what happens is when you engage with the buy and sell relations with other carriers, uh, because of the, the nature of these APIs, the onboarding process is cumbersome and it would take you, um, let's say, X amount of months or, or weeks, then you would repeat it every time you connect with any other provider because you know every API is a little different. Uh, the thing about what we've done at MEF is um, to standardize these interface reference points. And um, by that, uh, you have a very similar looking uh, standard API definition. And if uh, uh, it is widely adopted by other carriers, um, then the, the interop work required for onboarding another partner interface becomes much simpler because if you did did one you would be just more of the same and that's what michael was referring to that you know the onboarding time uh, for on for connecting with multiple partners would actually reduce scalability would increase so as a, as a whole telecom industry it would would actually benefit from the the work being done there under st standardized apis So uh, perhaps I'll add in here that we need to differentiate between the work that uh, MEF has done in standardizing these automation interfaces, what we call LSS and R3 APIs, and, um, and the POC for the partner onboarding and interop testing. So if we just look at the first one and in answer to your question, actually uh, there are several 
service providers um, that have already implemented this, that they're in production already with the standardized automation um, interfaces with these APIs. So that's actually happening. It's actually in the market and this network of uh, service providers that are uh, carriers that are uh, automating their business using these APIs, that's actually happening uh, today and it, and it will grow and it will uh, increase the number of products that are uh, available um, to uh, not only the other service providers that are part of this network that's connected through these standardized uh, automation interfaces, but also to the end customer because they'll get more choice, have a better customer experience in terms of getting what they want faster for, for, for their business needs and, uh, and the, uh, the quality of the experience in, in doing that. So that's, that's one aspect and that's happening and that's in production already. Um, the, the second aspect is this partner onboarding and in-drop testing, which is uh, essentially what we seeded in the, in the POC. And the importance of this is um, that it means it's going to be easier for additional service providers to join this network, this existing network of, uh, of, of, of service providers uh, using these standardized automated uh, interfaces. And the more it's the network effect, the more of these service providers that can join the network, uh, the, the, the more valuable that network uh, of, of service providers is and what they're offering. And this POC um, that enables both what we call buyers and sellers to join this network uh, faster means that the network will grow. And where is the, what, what's the status of this, uh, of this partner onboarding and interop testing that we seeded in the POC? Uh, we're planning to go to production later this year uh, so it will be available to service providers. And as, as was mentioned earlier, the advantage for the buyer is that rather than being able to onboard, let's say three or four partners a year, they'll be able to, uh, to onboard uh, 10 times as many. They'll be able to onboard 30, 40 a year. So you can see that that will grow the the network of uh, interconnected um, service providers much faster. From the point of view of the seller, the advantage of this partner onboarding and introp testing platform that we're going into production with later this year is that um, it, it will enable uh, sellers that don't necessarily have a lot of business already with a, with a potential buyer partner uh, it will enable them to get onboarded faster. Why? Because they'll essentially be doing a lot of the pre-qualification uh, in advance so that by the time they get to their buyer partner, even though they have currently low transaction volumes, perhaps, it's still worthwhile to the buyer to onboard them and, and build up that business with them. And if they build up the business with them, of course, that's very good for the seller. So we, we expect this partner onboarding and interop testing platform, this service to be very, very important for growing this network of, uh, of uh, interconnected um, uh, service providers offering digital products. Fantastic. Um, we'll just opening up to the team now because I know that Alan and Natalie have some further questions for you. Um, guys, I'll hand over to you now. What's the mechanism for MEF 
actually getting it out into the market, are you going to be appointing vendors or are you selling it directly? Or is this a sort of collaborative event uh, process that uh, your members will be able to pick it up and sell it to their potential customers? So um, essentially, uh, the work that MEF does has, has traditionally been to um, develop standards and, and associated deliverables and make them available for free to the industry that can vol voluntarily adopt. So why do our members join MEF in order to uh, essentially uh, develop standards that can then be given for free to the rest of the industry? Because um, the, 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 the um, trend is that as there's more standardization, there's less fragmentation and the market grows. Uh, and, and a similar approach is being taken here that the the development of these uh, software artifacts essentially and the associated documentation are uh, made available for the industry to adopt and implement in their systems or, or to partner with um, vendors that will do that for them. So um, the approach we're taking is to make it as easy as possible for service providers to take what we've developed in, in consensus among our members, um, both as code and uh, documentation and enable them to implement it because the sooner more providers implement it, the larger the network grows, the more innovation there is, the more products there is, the more business there is, and the faster the digital transformation of the end customer can happen. Um, so just from my perspective, I suppose one thing that I, I've often been kind of curious about when speaking about interoperability and standardization as a whole is, you, you know, the general hesitancy that you get from certain service providers um, from kind of uh, coming together and collaborate with others, whether it be, you know, that that kind of hesitancy to want to, um, you know, sometimes work with competitors or even sometimes that kind of ridiculous um, idea around, you know, if you working closely together might have some kind of, you know, security implica implica implications. So I was just curious to know um, how you get around that kind of um, cultural kind of shift that needs to happen to really make projects like these and proof of concepts like these work seamlessly. Um, I, thanks, Natalie. I can shed some light on that. So, you know what, what we call there in the, in the telecom industry is cooperation. So you're you're co uh, cooperating and also competing with each other, and that's kind of the way that the wholesale carrier space works. Um, you know, so any any um, services that we're providing to end users today, they're not really very few of them would 100% uh, reside on a single carrier's backbone, uh, especially the last mile. And so, you know, even so, like, for example, our network PCCW Global provides uh, in uh, uh, all the six major content, I mean, all the six continents in the world, about 100 plus countries. But um, we have POPs um, or data centers available in these countries. The last mile, we would still have to work with the regional carriers or, or service providers to extend from like a data center to a customer prem um, uh, offices and buildings. Um, so this is the nature of the business. You know, we buy and sell uh, in uh, in a wholesale environment in order to provision end-to-end -end circuits for the enterprise customers. And so this buy and sell activity has been going on for years, you know, a long number of time, but that has been all uh, manual up until the time that, um, you know, the interface reference points came out and standardized services came out around uh, carrier Ethernet. 
And so now we have these interfaces and we have enough network automation in uh, carriers networks that allows us to now, uh, you know, order services, um, quote and order services automatically in provision. So it actually is a win-win for, for both uh, the seller and the buyer in this case, uh, because it cuts down um, a lot of inefficiency between, uh, you know, manual handoffs and whatnot. And it allows uh, the BSS Gnosis systems of uh, carriers to exchange information of value and be able to create those end-to-end uh, -end, um, networks really fast. You know, so it actually is a win-win. No, I think you answered it all. I think the main point to get from this as well is that it's about automating the way the providers work, you know, initially the way the providers work today. So it doesn't violate that um, sort of those bilateral arrangements, which are, you know, um, uh, you know, constructed in a way that that uh, uh, the partners are actually uh, comfortable with the the business arrangement. You know, so I think that's very important. Uh, but it does open up new doors for them to expand their their business arrangements and expand their partnerships. But it's about automating that process, ultimately for the end customer who will be the enterprise. You know. Just to uh, address the the question of that cultural uh, aspect. MEF has been um, standardizing carrier Ethernet services and, and, and many other services and the automation interfaces now. Uh, we've been around for, this will be our 20th year. It's our 20th anniversary this year. And, and when I joined MEF, it did seem very counterintuitive. How is it that all these competitors sit in the same room and very uh, in a very civilized way um, work with their competitors to agree and, and reach consensus. And it is exactly what they've said. It's about win-win. And at the beginning of a new market, you get a couple of players that think, oh, I can dominate this. You know, if I get in there and I take the market, then I will um, basically, I'll be the de facto uh, winner. Um, but it just doesn't happen really anymore because uh, these environments are so complex and the customers don't want to be locked into a particular vendor that if uh, it's dominated by one vendor, a market, it doesn't really last very long. So, uh, or it doesn't grow, it's not sustainable. So everyone's got used to the idea that working together and reaching consensus together, even with your competitors, essentially is what builds the market. And then afterwards you excel in your own, you know, with your own, what they call secret source, um, you differentiate yourself, but everybody agrees on some sort of common basis that they can work on and interoperate on. And then they, they do their high value uh, within their product uh, and, and within the constraints of the standard. And that works very well. And, and we have, uh, we have 50% approximately of our membership from uh, the Americas, North, Central and South. We have about 25% from Europe and we have 25% uh, from, um, from the Asian region. So we're very, very global. This concept of win-win, this cultural attitude of reaching consensus for the benefit of everybody um, is very, very well entrenched and it's getting stronger every day. Perfect. Thanks for that, guys. Makes perfect sense.
And that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. Thanks to the team for bringing us the latest on all those stories. Thanks to Daniel, Devesh and Michael. And thanks also to everybody who listened. We will be back next week with more stories from the global tech and telecom space. But until then, you can catch up with all the latest from across telco and data center industries over at capacitymedia.com. Also online, you'll find the latest issue of the magazine and details of our events calendar for the rest of 2021. We've had Digital Infra Leaders Europe taking place this week. And from 5th of July, we also have Subsea World. For now, that's all from me and the team. Take care, have a great week and catch you next time.